0: Well, greetings, brethren. It's incredible that we're keeping once again God's Feast 2010. It's a time of rejoicing before God. It's a time we picture and celebrate the promise of the very kingdom of God, the reign of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. I'd like to address in this message what this means to each of us, and particularly The fulfillment of the very plan and purpose of God in our life as individuals. When Jesus Christ returns, the Bible shows that he will come with his bride and that the marriage of Christ will take place and our salvation will have been literally fulfilled, that God's plan and his purpose will have taken that step of fulfillment in our lives that we are now a part of God's very family. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, in verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. And so the Scripture is very clear that it's a wonderful blessing to be a part of the first fruits of God, that we will have a part in the leadership and serve God as kings and priests because Jesus Christ will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. But to live up to those responsibilities and to fulfill them, we're going to be very sons of God. And today I particularly want to focus on that reality, that we're going to be, as Mr. Meredith has stated at times, full sons of our very God and Creator. Mr. Armstrong, when he would address this subject, started in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, it speaks of the creation. And in verse 26, God, at the very outset, as He created man, made the statement regarding the creation of man, God said, "'Let us make man in our image.'" According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him. One of the incredible and wonderful understandings that has been given to God's church in this age is the understanding that we're to be a part of the very family of God. Not that many years ago, when there was an attack upon the truth, and the very teachings that God had given to Mr. Armstrong, one specific area of attack was on this topic. And there were many, many different reasonings and concepts that were put forth, But the Bible is very clear. And I'd like to cover today aspects of what God says and the promises made and given to us so we have a clear understanding. And it's not something, brethren, that you ever have doubt about, but rather, even at this time, you understand that God has called us His children, His sons, and that that is our relationship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15... The Apostle Paul was expounding upon the resurrection. And he said in verse 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Now, both in this passage and also in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul likened Jesus Christ to adam and he makes it very plain here that is it goes on to say the last adam became a life-giving spirit however the spiritual is not first but the natural and afterward the spiritual and so he's talking about man and he's talking about Adam, whom God created of the dust of the earth, and of Jesus Christ, who is God, who became flesh and blood, who became a human being, and who literally the Scripture reveals to us by the very first holy day in God's plan, as He reveals His plan of salvation, that He gave His life. And so He was human. And when Jesus Christ died, He was dead. And he was dead and in the grave for three days and three nights. Paul goes on to say, verse 47, The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. In other words, We, in fact, physically inherited and are in the very pattern and the image of the creation of God of Adam. And that has continued. And of course, we all know that. We're physical flesh and blood. Uh, Many of those of you who hear this particular message will hear it during the feast because you're not able to attend the feast. And that may be for a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons is simply mobility. That God has blessed you with life, a long life, with an understanding of His ways. But physically, you do not have the same capability that you had earlier in life. And so we're dust. We're flesh and blood. And every day we're reminded of that. But the Apostle Paul goes on to say very clearly here, says, "...the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven." As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Now, his analogy and his statement is very direct. That as much as you are indeed flesh and blood, and as much as we depend upon this physical body for life, the beating of the heart, the breathing of the lungs, all of the physical things that are necessary, food and water, all of those things we depend upon. They're of this earth. They're temporal. But he also made it plain here in this statement that those who have God's Spirit, that those who are of the heavenly, that they also are Those who are heavenly. That man so also, or as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, and we know how we've done that in all the many different ways, and we're beginning to understand even more in detail regarding DNA and the physical makeup and the design of God's creation... He makes it plain: We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, we we've come to understand when we think about creation, that that image is just not an outward appearance. It's about the entirety of what we are, our very makeup. And I believe very strongly that the apostle Paul understood that. He understood that our very makeup and what we are was to change. He goes on to say, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. Now that change is going to be an incredible change. We're going to change literally what we are in our very existence. The very life that we have is going to change. It says, this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. God's going to give us Life eternal, an incredible and unbelievable blessing. I know that in many ways we're limited in our comprehension of what that really and truly means, to have and possess eternal life. But the Bible reveals that. That is God's very clear promise. It is the promise of life eternal. The Bible also does reveal how that will take place. And how even in this life, that process has started. Because the how is literally through the very Spirit of God. It is through a begetal and a birth. In the book of John, in John chapter 1, in verse 12, we read of Jesus Christ, who is God, who came in the flesh at the very Word of God, And in this passage, it makes a very straightforward statement and promise. In John 1, starting verse 12, "...but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God." That through Jesus Christ, we were giving the right, or as it says in the marginal reference the actual authority or the power that God through Christ gave us the power or the authority to become children of God. Now, some have argued that we are children by creation. And the Bible certainly does indeed say that the entire family of God's creation bears His name. But as you read this statement, you realize that if that were true, then that's true even before we're given the right by Christ. That would be true of all of God's creation, all of mankind. And this statement is saying, no, that's not true until, and until this point in time when Christ came and we receive him, and then on that condition, says he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And so this passage is not talking about the fact that we are indeed God's creation, and because God did create us as he created all of his creation, that we would bear his name as our creator. That avoids the reality of the issue, which is clearly revealed in the Bible, that God, through Jesus Christ, has given us a promise. It goes on in verse 13, "...who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." The Bible speaks of the transition, that will take place, and also what God is doing in us as a begettle that will lead to birth. And in that birth, there will be new life. And it will not be based upon this flesh. It will be life that is given to us through the very power and the Spirit of God. And it is God's Spirit in us a spirit we received and we entered into a covenant relationship with God that was given to us by promise through the laying on of hands. Jesus Christ, in John chapter 3, made specific reference to this when he talked with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. It's interesting because as you read this passage, you realize it was Jesus Christ who brought up the subject. He was the one who made the statement and actually raised the question to Nicodemus because this man was indeed a teacher in Israel. It says, This man, verse 2 of chapter 3 of John, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus didn't ask, and he wasn't questioning about the topic that Jesus Christ then made a statement about. What he did acknowledge was we know, and he, I'm sure, very clearly indicated that he personally knew that Jesus Christ was a teacher from God. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus responded, I think as most any one of us would, without understanding. He said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You know, in the very context, it makes it very clear by the use of what Christ said and how Nicodemus responded that he was talking about a birth. By how Nicodemus responded, it's, it's, it's very, very clear. He understood what Christ meant. Christ did not correct him, and say, well, no, no, you do not understand. Christ instead said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that is exactly what transpires in a Christian's life, that there is a baptism because it's a covenant relationship and the giving of the Spirit of God. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Just as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if we're of the heavenly, then we will be in the same image. Christ was clearly telling Nicodemus this reality. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He said, don't marvel. And he actually later said to him in verse 10, it says, are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? And so Christ plainly revealed to him the reality of what God is doing. And that is that God is giving us his spirit, which the Bible reveals to be a begattle in this life. But through that promise that we will literally be born again. And when we do so, we will be born into the spiritual realm. Christ said in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. You know, there's a power there. It can be extremely powerful, incredibly powerful, and yet we cannot see it. We feel the force. We know the energy. We can literally feel it even in a very slight, gentle wind, even a, a, a slight breeze on a calm day. We're sensitive to it. And if you've ever been in a a hurricane, which is an unusual or a a cyclone or that type of experience, it's unusual because it's not a gust of wind, it's a constant wind. It's a cons- consistent power, a consistent force. It's, it's totally different than a thunderstorm or, or a wind of that nature, and it's ever present. As long as that center is there and it's it swirling about and you're in its vortex, you feel constant pressure now it has and it generates its own tornadoes and and greater winds but it's it's a constant force and yet you cannot see it with your eye and god is telling nicodemus that there's a power that is present that is the spirit of god and it's a powerful force you do not see it with your eye but nevertheless christ said it is there it is present He said, So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. When God has given his Spirit to someone, it's a reality. It's a force that lives within them. It's a promise given by God. And literally, because of that Spirit, they are now of Christ. Notice in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8 and verse 9. Says you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now that's an interesting statement because we are still physical, are we not? We are flesh and blood. If we, you know, were to cut ourselves, we bleed. And what it's speaking of is in God's mind, in His perspective. It goes on to say, now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Brother, we fully understand that. We understand that the church of God is not a physical organization. Now, we do work through a physical organization and as a body, a physical body. But what makes us a member of that body is God's spirit that it is God's Spirit in us that makes us a part of that body. It goes on, verse 10, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. God, who is our judge, that is how He views us, that He views us in His sight, that those things that where we have stumbled and fall and we transgress, that through Jesus Christ we have forgiveness. And what God looks to is what is in us, which is His Spirit, which is life. And that's because of righteousness. It's because of the things that we strive to do in obedience to God, in using His Spirit and drawing close to Him in prayer and Bible study and occasional fasting, that that is life. In verse 11, "...but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies." That's God's very promise, that with God's Spirit dwelling in you, that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and just as you were taken out of the waters of baptism the very symbol involved, was just also explained here in the book of Romans, that God has promised you life. That was a promise given to you. That promise was then followed by the laying on of the hands of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And when that instruction was followed, because that is God's instruction... Then God gave each of us who were baptized, who repented of our sins and accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. God gave us His Spirit. And He makes it plain here that it's through His Spirit who dwells in you that He will give life to your mortal body. That's an interesting statement. Most of the time in The Protestant world is viewed in symbolism. But, you know, God reveals it's a reality. It is, in fact, what God is doing, that He is, in fact, and has placed within us His Spirit, a begetal. And it's the very presence of God within this flesh and blood that then makes us a part of the body of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting because when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to take that body, which is the church of God, to be his bride. Now, in God's church, and living church of God, we have come to understand that that marriage, which will be the marriage of Jesus Christ to the church of God, will take place at the very throne of God. There are many parables in the Bible that speak of a marriage, and those parables are about the kingdom of God. Christ often likened the kingdom of God to a marriage because in reality that is the beginning step that takes place and will take place in our relationship with God as his children. Now, if you've not understood that, please take the time to read the booklet, Revelation, The Mystery Unveiled. This was written a number of years ago by John O'Glynn. It's been published by the church, and he clearly goes through and explains in the booklet, in the account as he goes through and explains and unveils the mystery of Revelation, he also explains that, the marriage of the bride will take place at the throne of God. And that's something that has been discussed in the Council of Elders and has been accepted and taught by the leadership and the ministry of the church. I know we still have some who have not really read this and come to understand it, but if you do and you read the booklet, you'll see it's very plainly stated here, and it is a teaching of the living church of God. Now, brethren, in that relationship, I'd like to point out to you what it says in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, the apostle Paul is writing about the subject, literally, of Christ's relationship to the church, and he's drawing upon that to teach how a husband and how a wife should regard one another. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, and I'm only going to read that portion that he speaks of that has regard to Jesus Christ and the church, or the very bride of Christ. In verse 23, Ephesians 5, it says, Christ is head of the church, and he is Savior of the body. And so he makes it very plain that Jesus Christ is the living head. Now, that's a statement repeated many times in the Scripture, that Christ is the head of the church of God. It goes on then to expound how Christ relates to the church. In verse 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So Jesus Christ literally is working today in the church of God, in our individual lives, individually and collectively, preparing us for his kingdom. We also recognize within the ministry of the living church of God that one of our responsibilities as a ministry is to prepare a people for the Lord. That part of our job in, in expounding God's Word and leading and guiding and shepherding God's people is to prepare them in, you might say, unison with Christ as He prepares His bride. It goes on to say, His purpose in this, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church that what God accomplishes in our life, that in the end, and Jesus Christ is not going to fail in this, the end product is going to be a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, we certainly have not arrived and will not arrive in this flesh, through the flesh and of the flesh. It's going to be accomplished by God's Spirit, It's going to be accomplished through God's forgiveness, and it is, in our individual lives, accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and God will pass over our sins. But on the other hand, as God forgives us, brethren, there's also something that God wants to be taking place in our life, and that is that we are learning righteousness that we are through forgiveness and through God's mercy and through His grace, we are learning how to live in a godly manner. Now, we need forgiveness and we need God's grace because as we strive to do that, it's an upstream battle. You know, we are flesh and blood. And we do have to battle against the pulls of the flesh. And in this present age, we battle against Satan, and every aspect of his influence in society and the world around us. But that is what God wants us to do. Notice here in Romans chapter 5, please hold your place in Ephesians chapter 5, and you don't necessarily need to turn to it. I just like to read a very straightforward statement in Romans 5 and verse 21. It says, so as sin reigned in death. "...even so grace might reign through righteousness, or through obedience to God, to eternal life." That's the process, and that's what God wants as the fulfillment and how we use His grace. That we do not use it, brethren, for lawlessness, but rather we use it for righteousness." says, to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So going back to the book of Ephesians in verse 27, it's in that process then that takes place that Christ says that he might present her, that is the church, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, God's going to accomplish that. He's working in our lives to make that happen. Now, it goes on to say, as it speaks about a husband and wife, it then goes back to and talks about Jesus Christ to the church, that a husband should love his wife, and he ought to cherish her and to consider her and nurture her even as if it was his own flesh, that it was his very being. It goes on to say then, verse 29, just as the Lord does the church. It says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, in making this statement, the Apostle Paul then literally quoted from the Old Testament, but he also said this because in verse 32 he said, this is a great mystery. Now, he said this not in relationship to physical marriage. He says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about it, but when God created, when Jesus Christ created the woman, he did not do so of the dust of the earth. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, you know, Mr. Armstrong went back and he showed and and would show, and his eye started, in Genesis chapter 1, that when God created man, he clearly had in mind not just a physical creation, but it was the beginning of a creation. That when God did that, it was His purpose, that as He made us flesh and blood, that it was a part of a process, of a plan that would lead to our salvation, which would lead literally to our becoming His very children of His family that we would not only bear the likeness of Christ, we literally would be in His very image. Now, it's very clear that God had that in mind. As you examine and read the Scripture and you read the passage and think about its ramifications, it's also interesting to stop and realize then, God who made Adam of the dust of the earth, that's brought out in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 7, says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. But then when God created the woman who was to be the helpmate to the man, God did not do so of the dust of the earth. He did, in fact, create her from the very bone or the very flesh of his creation, Adam. This is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. So God literally extracted from Adam a part of his very being, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, what's interesting is because when Paul makes the statement in Ephesians chapter 5, he then basically is referring back to what is stated by Adam. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Apostle Paul said, verse 30 of Ephesians 5, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. You know, it's God's very Spirit dwelling in us that is the earnest and promise of life eternal. I think when you look back and see what God did, He also at the very same time, brethren, was drawing a connection to the process, to the very manner in which we become a part of God's family. That is God's very Spirit in us, both as a beguetal but also at the very makeup of what we are, that we will become a part of God's spiritual family. Now, it's also very important to understand that that is revealed. In other words, the promise, the strongest proof of the promise that we're going to be full children and sons of God is actually through Jesus Christ. We've been given that promise through God's Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1 and verse 13 it says, "...in Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise." The very same reference back as I re- we read earlier in John chapter 1. "...who is, that is, God's Spirit in us, who is the guarantee of our inheritance." until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, when it says the guarantee, it can also be translated as the down payment. This is you, if you entered into a physical contract to make a purchase, quite often someone to know that you are serious and you've made a commitment, and they've also then made a commitment to you, you give them a partial payment. When you give someone a partial payment, it's clearly understood that there's a binding agreement, that there's a promise. It also uses the word earnest, that you've shown your earnestness. And here in the New King James, it actually uses a very strong word, a guarantee. That's through God's Spirit in us. That's through Jesus Christ dwelling in us. It's through the process as... The Bible clearly tells us to have Jesus Christ live in us. brother. I think sometimes we tend to think of those terms more in symbol, and in some ways they're also reality. They're the reality that God's Spirit is a living Spirit, and that it dwells in us, and the very dwelling of that Spirit is the very tool and vehicle in which God's going to use to give us life eternal. You know, we understand that physically. We understand that in terms of a, a woman with child. That it's not a symbol that grows within the womb. It's something that is alive and living within her. Well, that's also very true of God's Spirit in us. It's alive, it's living, it is the very promise within you. It's Christ in you. It needs to be nurtured and fed and we grow, but it lives in us. And if we understand that and we accept that, we have an understanding, brethren, that helps us draw much closer to God. It helps us facilitate in every way what God is doing in our life. In the book of Hebrews the Apostle Paul explained and expounded Jesus Christ. He did so in certain aspects, which we certainly properly focus upon, as our high priest and our Lord and Savior. But he started with identifying, in fact, who Jesus Christ truly was. Because it was a time and a period of time in history when those who were exposed to the truth of God, perhaps in part not in agreement but in disagreement, some perhaps led off in their own vanity, they began to try to picture Christ in ways that are not supported by the Scripture or by reality. They thought of Him and various Gnostic ideas as an angel, and they had some very weird and, and distorted ideas. Paul wasn't writing to those people. He was dealing with their arguments. He was dealing with some of the deception that was taking place at that time. But he wrote about the literal Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 1, he started literally with who was Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of Hebrews 1, it says, "...God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets." has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And he makes it very plain, of the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so he makes it very plain right up front that it was a Son of God, and he was the Creator and the heir of all things, who being the brightness of his glory... Or as it could be translated, you know, he not only represented the very brightness, he was the very glory of the character of God. This is brought out as he goes on, and the express image of his person. As has been explained in God's church many times, that this concept was taken from the idea of stamping something, we're taking a coin. And you repeat it and you repeat it, and it bears the same image. We have today in modern technology made that even a greater science so that when we replicate something, we can replicate it, not where over a period of time that stamp gradually wears out. We've developed a process by where the mold is made temporary, and it makes only one. It's called lost wax a a lost wax type of um, process, but the mold is used to make wax and to make a ceramic mold, and then that mold is identical. It's never worn. There's no pressure upon it. There's nothing to change it. And so when we make something, we can make it very, very exact. It lessens the cost of the manufacturing process. It's, It's been around for a long time. There's also one reason we enjoy many things today at a reduced cost because it costs less to produce, less physical labor, less use of equipment, and it literally gives us many of the physical blessings and some of the mechanical and physical things we enjoy because they are less expensive. But when that's done, this is exactly what it's speaking of here, you have a replica they're exactly the same. You, you take one that's been made and you look at the other, you measure it, you can do everything. They are exactly the same. And that's what it's saying here of Jesus Christ, that he was the very image of the person or the character of God. And upholding all things by the word of his power, we, when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he made it plain, Jesus Christ was God. And he was God in the flesh. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Then he goes on in chapter 1. And he shows from the Scripture, from the Old Testament, statements made that clearly reveal that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he was not an angel. And I'll not read through each of them, but that's what his point was. His point was Jesus Christ was not an angel. He was, in fact, in reality, the very Son of God. And in verse 13, he concludes his thoughts, again, by quoting from the scripture, says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so speaking of the angels, Paul then goes on to say, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And he, in this statement, then changes somewhat the subject. First, it's about Christ, that he is the very Son of God, that he was not an angel. The angels were sent to minister to those who actually would inherit salvation, that is, those that God had created to become his children. It says, therefore, we must give, chapter 2, verse 1, the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now he then, at this point, is introducing our salvation, the promises God has given to us which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. You know, it's interesting. He's saying that Jesus Christ at first, you know, he confirmed the promises, but he also clearly, and he's concluding himself, and when you read the Scripture, you stop, stop and realize that the Apostle Paul said he was personally taught by Christ. Now, what was he being taught and what was being confirmed? It says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, this was confirmed that this was indeed Jesus Christ and that what he was expressing and what he was saying, that it was according to God's very will, that this is what the Father's doing. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Paul makes it plain here. The things he's now speaking about are of the world to come. But one testified in a certain place saying, and he literally quotes from, going back to the book of Psalms, there's also a statement taken from Genesis. But as we read this, and we know it's inspired of God, If you were to compare the two, you'll see that God added to and He expanded the understanding. It says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. God literally put everything that he created under man's feet. But that hasn't happened yet. You know, when Jesus Christ returns as King of kings and Lord of lords, it says very clearly in the book of Daniel that he will give the kingdom to his saints, that the rulership and the authority will be directly under Christ's leadership. But we're going to be a part of that ruling body of the family of God. Now, our purpose in that during the millennial reign of Christ will to be bring many, many others into God's family. But you know, brethren, we're going to be in a very special relationship because Jesus Christ will have married His bride. He will have married the church of God. And we will have had part in the first resurrection a better resurrection, a resurrection when God says there's a wonderful blessing and those who are part of that are holy. They're the body that Jesus Christ prepared to take as his bride. Now, let's go on to read because Paul makes this plain, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. That's not happened yet. As we celebrate God's feast, we look forward to the beginning of that phase of God's plan of salvation. But he goes on to say, then, but we see Jesus. Notice he very plainly is telling us that through Jesus Christ, we see something that you would not see on your own, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It was in Jesus Christ we see and we understand something that God reveals, which is very plainly stated, and that is that we are going to become the very children of God. As we read on here, "...for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory." to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. That Jesus Christ literally is later stated in the book of Hebrews through the things that he suffered, that he grew. And we also, brethren, often through the things we suffer and the trials we go through, it is a process of growth. It says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. It's that we are part, God is calling us to be literally a part of the very family of God. That we are indeed, as the Apostle Paul spoke of, as the church of God, we are concerning Christ of His very bones and of His flesh, we're of His very being, that it is the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And of course, Jesus Christ is going to marry that body, the church of God. He goes on then to say, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. And so when Paul makes this statement, he goes right back to the Scripture because a very, very strong statement. A very straightforward statement. And so to prove that, he shows in the Scripture itself, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. That relationship is one spoken of even in the Old Testament. But Paul's applying it in a very direct way. And in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. That we are going to be God's very children. We're going to be full sons of God. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. See, Jesus Christ also became flesh and blood. That's one of the very important aspects of what was transpiring at that time in terms of heresy was to deny that Christ was flesh and blood, brethren, was not only about the denial of Christ and his identity, but also was the denial that through Christ He revealed what we will be. That we indeed would be the very children of God. That when Christ returns, as John said in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, let's just notice here quickly. 1 John chapter 3. Do not leave your place in Hebrews. I'll come back to it. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And we know later that John literally saw Jesus Christ. And you can read of that description in the vision that God gave to him in Revelation chapter 1. And he then describes Jesus Christ in his glory. And, of course, God's going to give us glory and honor. That's one of the promises. And so when this statement is made here in Hebrews chapter 2, that he literally became partaker of flesh and blood, that he literally is an example that we see of what God's promise and his intent is in our existence, says he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And this flesh is indeed, it limits us, It does, in fact, make us very conscious of the physical aspect of our life. We depend upon it. But God, through Jesus Christ, has given us a promise, and His very Spirit dwelling in us is a promise living within us of life eternal. It says, For indeed, He does not give aid to the angels. Now, this is better translated in the King James But basically, even in the margin here in the New King James, it says, take on the nature of, The Christ did not take on the seed of or the nature of the angels. It says, but he does give aid, or he took on him the seed of Abraham, that it literally became flesh and blood. He was born of the heritage and the lineage of the family of Abraham. And that's one of the promises that is clearly understood even in the Protestant and greater religious community of this mainstream world today, that that promise of the seed was the promise of Christ. And Jesus Christ became flesh and blood. Why? Verse 17, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Now, part of that was that he then would serve as our high priest but also as a captain of our salvation, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, what is Paul talking about? He goes right back to it. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. You know what he is talking about in chapter 2? And very clearly said, if you go through and you study, and as I've expounded here, brethren, that when we look at the promise God has given to us, we see Jesus. We see Jesus Christ who became flesh and blood who was man, who received the Spirit of God and was literally God in the flesh, who died, was resurrected, and is the first of the first fruits. He was the firstborn of those that God now literally is preparing to be his very family. And so as we keep God's feast days and we understand it is a plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation is taking place in your life. It's pictured. You know, the Passover has not yet spiritually been fulfilled for any of us. His final fulfillment would come at the time of judgment, when God passes over your sins. The spiritual and final fulfillment of the Days of Leavened Bread, when sin has been completely removed from your life, brethren, will take place when that process of God's forgiveness takes place. And you literally become a part of God's family. And that will take place through God's Spirit, which was given to us and is symbolized the day of Pentecost. See, the spiritual fulfillment of God's holy days are yet for each of us in the future. That's true of atonement, it's true of trumpets, and it's true of the very picture of this period of time That is the thousand-year reign of Christ and the promise God has given to us. We know that. We look forward to that. But it's really important for us to understand, even Passover, Days of and Bread, and Pentecost, spiritually, they, in our personal life, still lie into the future. So as we rejoice and we worship God during the Feast of Tabernacles, brethren, let's understand and be in awe of the incredible purpose that God has in our life. Let's understand that what God has given to us is an opportunity, an incredible opportunity, something that is very hard for us to even truly comprehend. As it says in Romans chapter 2, in verse 6, it says, Who will render to each one according to his deeds, speaking of Jesus Christ, eternal life to those who by patient continuance In doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That's the gift and promise that God's given to each of us. It's an incredible future that lies ahead. And so as we keep God's holy days, brethren, we're reminded of the plan that God is carrying out for man's salvation. Let's also not neglect Let's grab hold and let's let God's holy days and his feast inspire and encourage us to fulfill our calling.